I'm Ingrid Delamar Kenny. I'm the CEO and founder of The Method. She's also my wife and she's the smartest woman I've ever met. First of all, she's my mom and she's really cool. She's all that and she's a superhero. Never mind CEO, she's gangster. This is the Pardon My French podcast. Hello and welcome to Pardon My French podcast. It has been a long hiatus since before the summer. It's been really difficult for me to upkeep with recording for Pardon My French. As you know, I've been busy. Um, a lot's been happening business-wise. And, you know, it's I've committed to have this podcast to gift to my audience for giving me so much and you know the fact that it is not a paid podcast meaning there are no sponsorships on this there's no ads and it's really something that you know I'm really doing to kind of be able to provide more content um and a little bit of that is selfish in the sense that you know I'm on social media and I'm on Instagram and I'm really you know I'm not an influencer and I do have influence. So I'm going to call myself a micro influencer. I have a micro community and micro communities are very powerful, but they only are powerful if you have, I guess, if you have a relationship with them. And for me, building my brand, having this relationship with my audience, my consumers or my potential consumers has been what would have, what has helped me succeed in building this brand. You know, my story brand has never been me as the hero. I've said this before. I've even said this in one of my podcast episodes that was about, you know, how to build a business. Not that I'm a huge expert, but how I went about it this way or that way, the mistakes that I've made and, you know, possibly by giving advice on not repeating the mistakes I've made, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, building a brand, especially in wellness and health and even beauty, even if it's a brand that is, you know, like founder driven, meaning that people are, you know, you're the founder and you're, you're the face of your brand. As the founder, I'm not the hero of the story. I'm supposed to be, you know, the, 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 the facilitator, like you are the hero of my story brand and you come to me with a problem and I am here to help you resolve it or, you know, to make it better. So that being said, the fact that I have I, I, a brand of influence, meaning my persona is, you know, the brand obviously, and, you know, I have influence. So let, let's call me a micro influencer for a minute. Although I hate that word because for me, an influencer is someone who is paid to influence you and offer you affiliates and constantly profit from your swipe ups on, you know, brands that they're either send products for free by or that are paying them to tell you they love this product and you should use it. And that's so not what I'm about and what, you know, gangster sheet brand or the methods about, as you know. Um, so, you know, in a way, doing the podcast, pardon my French, was a way for me to be able to continue to communicate with my audience. But as this audience grew and my line of product grew, they've needed more and more support. And 
I was kind of always repeating like, okay, so simply inulin, you know, is a prebiotic and you have to take like one teaspoon to start and blah, 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 and all the dosage. And at some point, even as a human being, you know, you forget that if you had a store, you would have to repeat this story over and over again for all new customers and passersby that would come and look in your window, come in and, and you have to sell to them. Except I never wanted to be a salesperson. I wanted to be a facilitator. I wanted, But the bottom line is I'm the only one who can sell my brand. I know my products. I, I, know, I know the why, right? That being said, it's like, how do you give your time to listening to your audience, but also answering their question, it came to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. And what it comes across as it's like, oh, Ingrid's gotten too big and now she doesn't really want to talk to us and we get an automated message. And I never wanted that because that's not how I got successful with Gangster Chic. I got successful with Gangster Chic listening to my audience and to my consumers and answering their questions and then listening some more and then launching fast and adjusting later according to what they were saying to me. And that's never going to change. I don't think a brand like Gangster Chic can pierce into an industry by acting like a big star, meaning like where you don't even have this personal, you know, one-on-one relationship with your consumers. That being said, of course, I can't keep on answering the same question over and over like in a way that, yes, I want to answer it over and over, but I, it's just, there's just one on me. And as this grows, it gets really big. So I had two options. Either I wouldn't be running my social media myself anymore and I would train people to know the answers. And to me, that felt so inauthentic. And I don't want people, I don't want staff in my inbox, at least not in my Ingrid de la Marcani inbox. So the only other way was to create content from me to you and based on your consistent questions and persistent questions and, you know, give you a podcast without ads that I'm profiting from. So no monetizing and, you know, having a place to refer you to. So, of course, you have like Instagram, IGTV, like all my posts, my micro posts, you know, the interviews that I've done, the podcasts I've gone on. But at the end of the day, to me, part of my French podcast was a way to, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, like a, I'm not a broadcaster. That was never my job. I don't even think I'm good at it. I think that even though I've got all the equipment Michael Bostick told me to get to podcast, um, the, my sound quality is still shitty and you know sometimes I'll just keep on repeating the same words over and over and you'll hear noise outside which is what's happening right now I don't want to get into that but and I'm like okay people will cut me some slack because I'm only putting part of my French out there as you know a way of being able to stay present on my social media and answering new questions and having the old questions also answered in my voice um, and what's great also is that, you know, from when I started the podcast, I think it was like in 2018 to now, you will realize I'm human. You will re- realize this authenticity, um, in the sense that people change and I've changed, you know, at the very beginning of my podcast, I was getting Gigi crackers. Then one, one year into it, I told you Gigi crackers are not good for me. I think the reason why I broke my jaw is because, 
of you know the Roundup glyphosate that's in Gigi crackers, and we didn't know that. We thought they were organic because they came from Norway. And then you hear me saying like things that I've changed my mind on. Like I, you know, I grew, I learned, I found things out, and then a lot has stayed very consistent about me. And so, you know, this is a way of kind of keeping me accountable in my eyes and in your eyes. Like this is, you know, this podcast for me is you you get to follow moi, whoever I am at different stages of my career, of my learnings and of my evolution. Like we, you know, we grow. And, you know, not that I I am saying, oh, you, you're going to, from one year to the other, you, you're going to hear me contradict myself. Actually, no. You're going to hear me grow more into myself and what I preach and my philosophy. You're going to hear every aspect of my life from when I've gotten bullied to what's been happening to me when I got a season disease notice from one of my pseudo competitors that, you know, that was harassing me and like fucking ruining my life. Um, you know, you, you've heard it all. And you even heard the episode um, audio of Fuck My Life, chapter six and kind of a little bit of the process of writing my book and the chapter. Um, We've had Jill on the podcast, giving us his tips uh, on relationships and, you know, kind of a male perspective. We've had Dylan speaking about being on the spectrum of autism and how we got through it and how did he end up. By the way, since our last episode, Dylan's graduated from law school in the UK, Um, he's also graduated with honors, and he is now a full-fledged lawyer. So this year he's doing uh, an extra, he's, he's becoming an associate, of course, but he's also uh, going to Queen Mary London. He's been accepted law school and he's doing an extra year master in um, artificial intelligence. So yeah, mom brag here. For those of you that have been following me for a while that know you know, how far we've come, Dylan and I, and have heard, I think it was like one of the very first 10 episodes. Dylan came on the podcast. He was like maybe 19 years old at the time. And um, we openly spoke about, you know, our battle with being on the spectrum and fighting the stigma of the the diagnosis and, and being told that he'd be like Rain Man for the rest of his life and he wouldn't speak another language. He wouldn't live alone. And all of that turned out not to be true because I was a mom that did not accept the diagnosis. I convinced him that we didn't have to accept it. And, you know, so a little bit of, a lot of it of, you know, our journeys is shared on that chapter. And that was before Fuck My Life came out, my book um, that gives you a little bit more of insight of, you know, how he was diagnosed, like what we went through and kind of how we got through it and how today He's not normal, he's extraordinary, but he's living a completely normal life. You can barely tell um, anything was different about him other than he's extraordinary. Mom brag over, just, you know, keeping you updated. I do need to get my thoughts in order. I feel like I have so much to tell you, but at the same time, I feel like maybe 95% of this audience is already following me on Instagram and, you know, knows what I'm up to. Um, however... I have promised a podcast episode coming back in September and speaking a little bit about how having the attitude that goes with being a little bit French. And the reason for that is because I've announced that my second book, which this time is not a memoir, called Go 
French yourself. And no, this is not censored for fuck. It is truly go French yourself. And it is gathering a bunch of how-tos and facts of, you know, being French with flair or rather having French flair um, on so many aspects of life, including etiquette and how it correlates with your health, um, you know, and, and French habits that really make your life and your health better. Uh, balances your hormone, great for your cortisol, um, great for your mindset, you know, and how to go about life with that nonchalance when you're being judged, when you're, you're being, you know, um, victimized or, you know, overall you've been bullied or, you know, how, how to respond, how to not care, but truly not care. Not just, you know, not just the attitude, like how to truly feel this way on the inside. And the book, I'm not going to give it away so much. I'm not going to give much more away, but it's called Go French Yourself. So, you know, there are so many sections um, in the book, mainly sections that you've inspired because you've asked me for them. Like, for example, I didn't have a fashion section because I feel like, you know, I'm totally obsolete in, in the world of fashion. Fashion is now, you know, it's my game. It's my passion. It was once my job and it was my job to be up to date with fashion. And now it's, you know, it's my passion, my game. So I feel like I'm just doing whatever the heck I want and I'm not in the best position to give advice. But then so many of you asked and said, you know, we, we want some tips. And so I'm keeping the tips on fashion very simple and very timeless so that they made sense 10 years ago and they'll make sense in 10 years and the way that I do that is because like truly my mom and my sister uh Corinne who's so French and she's you know 17 and a half almost 18 years older than me she's truly been my fashion icon icon and she uh she has this je ne sais quoi and I think this is something that's so French about us and I'll be talking to you about my niece Meryl as well who's a you know fashion designer and just just looking at this girl's talent, for example, um, some of you saw me wearing her shirts uh, by Sesai. Um, just seeing this talent, like it's just innate in her and she's, you know, she's not even 30 yet. I came to realize that this is just that Frenchness in us. Like we, we just have it in our, you know, running in our veins. And of course it, it's cultivated. My parents you know, his profession was in fashion. My, my sister is also in fashion. So we grew up in it and, you know, but, but mainly there's that je ne sais quoi that's definitely French. So I've decided to include that chapter at the last minute because I kind of quizzed you guys on, did I say you guys? I hate you guys. You guys. Hi guys. So I want to talk to you about this product and swipe up. I have an affiliate for like 20%. I feel like you guys became such a fucking sales gimmick for inauthentic influencers. There are authentic ones. One of my best friends is an authentic influencer. Uh, but the you guys thing, I hate it. If I say it, I need to catch myself. So what was I saying? I was saying that I quizzed my beautiful, wonderful, supportive, inspiring audience on um, Instagram and said, you know, my book's coming out. It's called Go French Yourself. What do you think it's about? And like mostly you guys, I just said you guys. Oh my God, I fucking hate myself for that. Um, and mostly you all um, figured it out. And 
then I realized that a bunch of you, shout out to Jenna, JJ Williamson, who's been my fashion follower for over 12 years and then became my friend. She was there for the fashion originally. Oh, do you guys hear that? There's a guy playing rap right outside of my office, which was supposed to be soundproof. Do you guys hear that? Wow, that guy is jamming outside. I came to record this in the office to avoid Lola barking. She's been barking so much. And now we've got the delivery man outside jamming to French rap. You guys hear this? Oof, I'm losing my train of thought, of thought, dude. Holy shit, finally left. I think we're going to leave that in the recording just because. Anyways, I don't have any paid ads, so my, you know, advertisers can't complain. You guys can complain, but hey, if you don't like it, um, fast forward or log off right? I promise I'll try to get better with the sound. Um, eventually. What was I saying? So I was saying that, yeah, you all kind of guessed what Go French Myself is about. And mainly, you know, a lot of tips and tricks of living a more French lifestyle. And when I say that, what I've done is kind of translated into you know, that, that, you know, why are French women so thin? Um, and I correlated it to with, you know, a, a great lifestyle and a way of eating food and not having emotions about food or not thinking of a relationship with food. And we've discussed that before. I've told you this before. Um, and correlating it with like all the health benefits that that entails and the reason why cortisol levels are lower and there's less insulin resistance from from the way that we sit straight at the table to the size of our plates and the time that we take to eat or, you know, the way that we kind of behave around food in general. And so, yeah, there's a lot of that in the new book and it's coming out end of November, beginning of December. Um, and of course, I had to add that fashion section because a few of you have asked, I've actually guessed that it should be in there and said, if it's not in there, it has to be in there. And, you know, I was, I was humbly not including it in there because like I said, I feel like my, my time has passed with fashion. You know, I left the fashion industry over 11 years ago. Um, things have changed since then and I haven't had to play by any rules other than mine. And some of the rules were, you know, my budget for a few years or, you know, me recycling stuff that I had, which I do that a lot. It's very French. You will see me wearing the same thing over and over, just, you know, pairing it and mismatching it with different things, um, but um, you asked for it. And like I said, shout out to JJ Williamson, Jenna, who's followed me since I think my Twitter days when I was a fashion stylist and she stuck around. She, uh, she, she stuck around first. She was there for the looks of the day and she stuck around through the health stuff. And eventually, I think in the last year, we become really close friends. I, I've just been so, you know, humbled and, and grateful that, to still see her name in my comments, like, my God, like, this woman, like, has been around for so long on my comments, like, she stuck with me through so many aspects of my life, and, you know, my, 
my metamorphosis of like in professionally um so yeah so that's included in in the book a lot more to come um and i'm not going to tell you anymore for now i think i've built enough anticipation have i does anyone even care yeah sometimes i've got to pull myself back down to earth you know fucking sit down be humble um what can i tell you a lot's happened uh professionally but i'm sure you follow that and i'm not going to use this podcast to you know pimp up every single one of my new products right um but i can tell you if you haven't been on my social media for a while you've seen me kind of share a lot of fucking abuse i've been subjected to um i have hate accounts i've had hate accounts uh we've uncovered who's behind most of them there was three of them um my pseudo competitor who has been so abusive since 2017 but she's been like those were really microaggression compared to what's been happening and she's always made sure not to get her own hands dirty and you know had other people do her dirty work but then i guess she um got unraveled and finally showed support for three hate accounts that she said were accountability accounts um and those accountability accounts that were supposed to keep me accountable for my actions right because i'm a fraud and i'm an ex-convict and you know, and she, she spoke about, like, she, she, she did a lot of lives. She even did a live on, like, Christmas Eve, I think, something like that. But um, she, she did a lot of lives. And on those lives, she would start saying my name. She even spoke about Dylan's pathology. And, like, she spoke about, you know, my legal um, papers. And she said she read them. And, like, she was saying all types of shit. Some of it not true at all. The rest of it, so, ugh, so like nasty and turned in such a way that's so gross and so unnecessary for someone who's a fucking nutritionist to be talking about, you know, my criminal record from like 13 years ago, talking about my son's autism and, and she's told people to follow those three accountability accounts on those lives and people started following and then these accountability accounts would like literally take pictures of every single one of my stories and started abusing Jill and the way that he looks, called him fat, said that I photoshopped him to look skinny. Um, they started tagging Joe's production company. They said that, you know, her boat, we have a, to- a small boat, nothing crazy, um, but we called it the shark. So if you listen to the episodes that Jill was in, you found out that um, Jill called his company Shark Prod because when he was single, all of his friends called him the shark because he would just, you know, hover around women that they were all kind of looking at at the bar and like trying to hit on. He would hover around like a shark and he would catch all of them. And so they all called him the shark. So when you open a production company, he called it Shark Prod. So when we bought our small boat, which is a vintage boat, nothing like not a yacht or anything. It's just super cute and like we love it. Um... He's like, what should we call it? And I was like, it's called the shark. It's like, but that's that's my name. I'm like, yeah, but you know, I caught the shark. So let's call it the shark. And so we called it the shark and I had beautiful pillows made. And we, you know, we engraved the shark on it. And like, we put the logo of uh, Shark Prod. So Jill's company's name is Shark Prod. 
but I called the boat the shark many, many years later when we bought it. And, you know, and so we were on the boat and I was like, oh, we're back on a boat. And these assholes posted and had the fucking guts to tag Gilles' company, which is his company. And he's like pretty much, you know, hiring people to work for him. So like, it's not like there's someone else looking at the tags, right? And they're like, oh, honey, this is not your boat. This is your husband, the, the company your husband works for. That's a company boat. And that's nothing wrong with, you know, these weird, you know, allegations or whatever, because people do that. But what was horrible is that they tag Jill's company, which I think, you know, for my pseudo-competitor um, harasser to support you know, hate accounts to kind of tag a production company and that has so much integrity in the business. And, you know, and, and then they started talking about Jill's, you know, Jill period, like his business, like he's the, the movies he's done. It, it, it was disgusting. And then they spoke about Dakota and like how her mental health is probably not right because I posted a picture of her and I and said, I've enjoyed so much not sending her to camp this summer and spending a lot of time with her. They spoke about Dylan's pathology. They called Savannah a thief. They spoke about the way Savannah dresses. They've called her names. And this is what she called accountability accounts. People need to follow for the truth. So that prompted, that's what's been happening as far as the shit that's been happening. And it's, it's been very taxing in the other sense that um, there was a lot of um, illegal uh what do you call those? My attorney told me it's called, oh, torturous interferences. And what those are is, what those accounts would do is that each time a retailer would post about Simply Inulin or any other of my products, or I would repost like, you know, my customers making their coffee or posting my products, they would actually tag these people and harass them, um, make up a lot of lies about, you know, our products having fake certifications and our products being poisoned and this and that. And they actually intimidated so many of my friends, my followers, my customers, my retailers. It's been wonderful to see the loyalty of all of these people who can tell bullshit and, and, and venom when they see it and evil when they see it. But this is illegal. And so with this, we've pursued very actively. Um, it's torches interferences especially when it comes from a competitor um, or it is sponsored by a competitor or it is supported on the public space by a competitor who is a public figure. It's completely illegal. Um, but yeah, they attempted to really intimidate a lot of people and really try to flip this like as a smear campaign against me. And so my family was abused. My retailers were abused. My customers were abused. Everyone's been really, really wonderful in sticking by me and I have to admit it you know it's it's so heart heartbreaking one of my retailer they you know because they couldn't keep on attacking her for selling simplanial they started taking attacking her beautiful and transparent and healthy and you know just immaculate product and brand and she you know this is how she feeds her family and one morning she sent me a message said you know, I'm going to keep on supporting you. I'm not going to fold to the harassment. You need to do something. Like, they're going to affect my sales. Like, they're saying my product is this and that. Like, this is how I feed my children. And that day, I kind of 
went on my social media and shared the story and I um I tried to boost her sales and it really worked. You guys were wonderful. Like we offered uh you know a discount, like a huge discount on our website, on my website. If you bought from her, like you just would send me her a receipt of a purchase from her and we would give you a huge discount on Gangster Chic website. And that worked, you guys. You guys, I said you guys, but I think in this I can say it. And it's like you all like I told you the story. And she was like, please, no, no, don't, don't tell, don't tell people though. And I was like, let me just, you know, be transparent. Let me tell our audience, people who love us, people who support you, people who realize how hardworking you are. Let me tell them how you're being, you know, smeared and intimidated into, they pretty much told my retailers, like either you walk away from Ingrid and representing her product, or we're going to destroy your brand. And for months, they have terrorized my customers, my children, my friends, it's been terrible. And, you know, we got to a point that Instagram trust and safety finally got in touch with me, was able to take two of them down. There was one last one um, who was kind of walking a thin line. So they weren't able to take it down. And we finally got the identity of the people behind that account. And they were very close family members of this person um, or and her herself potentially since when we don't know if these people are getting paid or but you know a collaborator and, and a niece um and ultimately lawyers are getting involved and you know these torturous interferences these um intimidations a lot of illegal shit happening and so why am i telling you this story now not not to you know not to fucking bother you with the drama i think you've had enough of it already on my social media when i shared it um but to show you that first of all, transparency with all of you when I was going through it wasn't is not easy because when someone calls you a, a fraud or or they say that you know your face your face is fucked up by plastic surgery, which is what those accountability account with holding me accountable for my cheeks and my lips and you know my hair, which supposedly are wigs and extensions, and finally they posted my address, which one of my addresses. Uh, they posted a map to where my house is and um, we almost had uh, an armed robbery and I didn't share that on my social media, but I'll share it on here because that's part of, you know, what Monaco police um, was able to reach out to authorities in the United States and to Instagram and to Instagram. Um, but I'll spare you all that shit. We went through a lot. You guys signed a petition to um, encourage this woman to stop the abuse and stop supporting abuse um but i'm not you know the reason why i'm sharing this is because this prompted so many of you to ask me like how do i stay so poised and calm like is it real and and you know what yes and it is real and i think that that's what today's episode is about on popular demand all five of you yeah who asked <laughs> kidding um i mean it's a micro community i can't say there's like thousands of you asked but you know listening to my valuable audience and I and I know you like when I see your usernames when I get your messages it's like I know this name I know this person when I see your comments that's what I like about the micro you know world like the micro social media audience rather than this wide audience and you know being adored by millions um it's 
it's the fact that you can listen carefully. There's not too much noise and there's not too too many ones. It's like you can really get the gist of, you know, a like-minded community, which is so much what my community is like. Many of you even got of like got to become friends and knowing each other. I've I there's something so amazing about this whole you know community. Um, there's even one of my retailers uh, in Long Island, New York, who met one of my you know customers and audience members, and you know one of them. So my my retailer Lauren, um, who was selling Simply Newland at her salon in Long Island meets my other customer and you know member of my community through Inulin their love of Inulin and they they end up becoming friends on social media and you know one of them does eyebrows and like she's she's an eyebrow artist New York eyebrow artist um and the other one does lashes and she has a lash studio in and both of them just went partners and opened something in New York called the babe cave Shout out, shout out, shout out to these two badasses. Um, and it's incredible because when they did the reel to show their grand opening, they tagged me and they like, we met because of our love for Simply Inulins. That's what this community is about. And to not lose my train of thought, the reason why I'm saying this is because what I love about the community being micro, like I have something like 77 or 76,000 followers. I had more, but then when I started talking about being Jewish and, you know, fighting anti-Semitism, I lost a lot of followers. Um, and I'm, I may lose followers for other reasons. You know, I'm not I'm not for everybody. Some people are not going to like how I curse. Some people are not going to like how I deal with certain things. Some people are not going to like how I, you know, tell them to go to my highlight when I'm asked for the hundredth time, what's the brown stuff in my coffee, you know? I'm not for everyone and that's fine. Anyways... Again, trying not to lose my th- my train of thought. The reason why I like this micro community and being a micro influencer, brand owner, is because I get to listen to you. And the response to me sharing everything I've been going through with this harassment and, you know, and we, by the way, we also have uncovered who gave them my address, which is someone who used to work for me and was fired for horrible, illegal misconduct. So that's all being pursued legally. And things are, I think, getting under control. Thank goodness. The reason why this episode warranted before I do the um, the chapter of the book that I wanted to read for you. So if you haven't read the book or you wanted to hear it in my voice, you understand why this episode has come to be and why I kind of like giving you the download on what's happened in the past few months since the last podcast episode is because your reaction was first to be so supportive and like say, you know, like, oh, I unfollowed those accounts or I reported those accounts or, you know, like, and just showing me such beautiful support, which by the way is the reason why I'm still here. That support genuine support that loyalty from my retailers people my friends who have been abused influencers whose names and products have been dragged by these pseudo accountability accounts that are just hate accounts vile hate illegal accounts two of which have already been removed and one other that is under 
very heavy investigation and suspicion. And I have a feeling they've already received notifications from authorities on what's happening. The support I got far outweighs the abuse. So that's one of the reasons that I can cope so well. And the rest of the reason, which is what many of you were asking about, is like, how do you have this attitude of like, I don't give a fuck? And I think that is the French side of me. And I think that was that's worth, you know, mentioning. And it's mentioned in the book. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book, Coping Mechanism, to kind of tell people to go French themselves, go fuck themselves. And, you know, when you go fuck yourself, you kind of go French yourself because you go mind your fucking business. And that's very French. French people mind their business. Um, They're not the nicest. They're not the warmest. But they fucking mind their business. And that's very French. And that's very chic. Um, So that's in the book. And I kind of wanted to discuss it on this episode because that's what except for hormones and health and, you know, lifestyle tips. That's what so many of you around me are so intrigued and so interested in and feel like you need the most help with is how to cope with judgment, how to cope with being trolled and harassed, how to cope with being in situations that don't pay your bills and situations that actually don't do shit for you but you're still finding yourself in them like you know sitting at a Christmas dinner with a family that does not pay your bills or a family that does not serve you right because they affect your mental health and you know or or even your health sometimes and you're still there like how do you cope and how do you kind of go French yourself or how should they go how can you send them to go French themselves so Um, that's kind of the background and I really don't know if, you know, we're going to get to the bottom of it on this episode, but I surely needed to give you kind of a summary of what's happened. The bottom line is that you've, yes, I've brought some of the drama on my social media because I have to be transparent. I can't just bring you the best of my life. Like you've seen me, I, 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 I had my dream summer this summer. It's been my dream. That's what I've been working for. As you all know, Sam Bart's um, West Indies is where Jill and I got married. This island has a huge place in my heart. I've been going there since I'm a child. You know, I have a lot of memories. I have a huge attachment to that island. And Jill actually grew up on the island. And his family founded, uh, you know, we're founders of the island. Um, with the current president Bruno Magha and his grandfather, Jill's grandfather, you know, helped build the island. And so there's so much legacy for us there, and this island is just just a dream. And so we got married there, and we go there religiously. And our goal ultimately is when we are, you know, old and won't work as much, or we'll stop working. We want to live there part time. That's really what I'm working for. That's my goal. And so this summer. My dream came true to actually, you know, have a home there and spend the summer there. And we did. We spent like over a month there with the kids, with our adult kids in Dakota. I was a teen, still the kids. Um, and it was wonderful. And all that abuse was going on. And I was able to completely mute it out and kind of, you know, let the authorities and, and 
you know, like Instagram, whatever services that are in place for this, handle it. But I would be able to like answer the emails and send the paperwork and, you know, get in touch with authorities and stuff like that. And then I would be able to kind of like put it in this, you know, odd box and, or, you know, like awaiting mail to be sent or whatever, like in my head, like I, I don't want to see spam because I always talk about putting things in the spam folder, but no, this needed to be taken care of, but I would take care of it. But then I could go on about my happy life for the rest of the day. So it would only affect like 40 minutes of my day as I was dealing with it. And then I was able to mute it out and live the rest of my life. And the reason why I'm able to do this, I have an advantage on most of you. Not that I have ha- I have had a harder life than most of you. No, we all have our struggles and there's no small, smaller or bigger struggle. Everyone has a struggle at their own level with its own density and its own pain. So that's not what I'm saying. But my advantage is I have gone to prison, federal prison for a year, medium high security federal prison. What this has done for me in my mind the pain that it's put me in, the way that I've dealt with it was a near death experience where I was stuck in the tunnel of death for a year. And I was kind of looking back at the beautiful pink light that was my life, my kids, my children, their smile, their giggles, their smell growing up. And I was moving farther away from it every day, not knowing how long my sentence was going to be because I was in prison for four years originally and I ended up winning my appeal and coming out a year later and then looking at the end of that tunnel and seeing no light you see no light in my position I saw no light I was given no hope and I didn't even think I would survive it to see the light a day on the other side and so I sat a lot with my thoughts and what happened to me when I came out of prison is that Today, and I'm sure you've heard me say this before, today even water tastes good to me. And having this ability to appreciate the the taste of water in life is what has given me this attitude. So many of you see it as a French attitude and you're absolutely right. And this is probably why it's been, you know, my metamorphosis because it's already this implication that my culture my parents' culture that was, you know, that was passed on to me, the French culture is to usually mind your damn business, you know, keep your eye on the ball and like mind your fucking business. Like don't, you know, look right, don't look left. So yeah, you know, French people are very jealous. I'm not saying they're perfect and I'm not saying they, you know, they don't talk shit and I'm not saying that, but I'm saying they have this thing that no matter what they are, whether they're jealous, whether they vie, whether, whether they're wonderful, whether they're charitable, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, they do have this kind of thing where they absolutely do not give a shit what certain people think about them. They may think what some people think about them, but not all people. And that is something that, so pair that culture trait that I definitely inherited to start with, pair it with my experience in prison, where coming out, I a day of gratitude for sunlight, for no fog, because the fog terrifies me because in Danbury, Connecticut, Danbury, uh, FCI, where I was, fog terrified me because it meant that we would stay in full lockdown. And it also meant that my kids who would have driven with my ex-husband three hours to see me from New York 
could not come into visiting. So just waking up to a day without fog makes me grateful. Never mind the beautiful views that I share with you all of the Mediterranean. That's to me, that's beyond. That's living in a fucking dream. And the gratitude for that is at a level I cannot even explain. Smelling the smell of my children, whether they're children or now adults, being able to touch their hand the way that I want because contact was not completely allowed and, you know, hugs were not allowed at all times. And just that alone, I still have that gratitude. So when you ask me, like, how do I cope with so much abuse and still, you know, you still me still go still going with like poise or, you know, I don't even want to say poise because that's kind of like being full of myself. It's not poise, but just not caring what people think and being able to just enjoy my life and love my job and keep doing my job and keep pushing, right? Pushing through. It's a combination of my culture and it's definitely a combination of living in that dark tunnel of death without hope. Um, and so I hope that the book, if you have read it and you didn't get that out of it, you need to read it again. And yes, you will notice again that the editor that did the work on my book was not great, even though she was a New York Times bestselling editor. Uh, and there are some typos and there are some errors that we will work on again eventually. Um, but yeah, I had two editors on it. And by the way, the French version just came out. And the editor on that one, the French editor, Anaïs Le Faucheux, and my translator, Natasha Frost, are badasses. So that French version, I think, is much better than the English version in the sense that there are less errors. But another edition of the English version will come out eventually. just haven't gotten time to hire the right editor to to do it um so yeah read it again with this perspective that you know be in the tunnel with me again and when you come out of that tunnel find that gratitude and find that anyone that comes at you with microaggression microaggressions or harassment violent um violent um trolling like that's nothing compared to, you know, someone's gone through cancer, let's say, or what I've went through. Not that I'm comparing, like I said, no pain has a thermometer making it bigger for one person than the other. Everyone's pain is different. Everyone's pain has its own density. And one's terrifying and terrible pain doesn't lessen somebody else's who feels they are at the same level or higher level of pain, if that makes sense. That being said, let's go into reading a chapter that I chose to read for you. Um, and we can do a follow-up. I don't want this first podcast episode to be too long. Um, I'm going to commit to do one podcast episode per month. I knew I was doing one per week when I first started. And just now, I still don't want to monetize on the podcast. I still want it to be my gift to my audience and kind of like to have a platform where all questions are permanently answered and where you can see my involvement. For example, on this podcast, if you go back to the very, very first podcast about Simply Inulin, you will find out the name of my then manufacturer. And because I shared that. And then I changed manufacturer and 
I changed my formula. I used to have chicory root mixed with Jerusalem artichoke root. And I said that. And I said, no. And at first we just had chicory root. And I shared the name of my manufacturer back then. And it's like, and then we moved on and on. And then I announced that like I found that the mix of chicory and Jerusalem artichoke root is so much better. And then we moved on and I said, no, I found a way to, and I found a manufacturer and finally it's going to be kosher because the manufacturer is going to do it for us, different manufacturer. And it's now pure Jerusalem artichoke root. And, you know, and by the way, so if you kind of, because why am I saying this? Because I see like when, when you have hate accounts, you kind of like see where people think they are Christopher Columbus who discovered America and like America has been discovered motherfucker. You know, it's like, you, you hear people that, and you don't, like, I don't care. Like, I, this is why the podcast is here. The podcast is here to show you an evolution that has transparency, but it shows you that we are humanly and professionally progressing and changing, and that's okay, right? So when people, like, these asshole were like, oh, I found a manufacturer. It's like, dude, wake up. I have a podcast episode from 2017 about that then manufacturer. I'm the one who gave the brand name, you know, and said like, I'm just repackaging at the time because these guys, like they don't do social media. They don't talk to an American audience. They don't even really market in UN. Like I'm the one who started talking about it. There's actually, actually an article, I think from 2018 from Backsnob where they said like, you know, in Yulin is an old thing, but in it's, it's, becoming really famous thanks to Ingrid Domarkani who's educating her audience about it it's true I you know I didn't cook up a recipe for inulin this is naturally occurring in your fruits and vegetables right but it was sourcing it and so my whole sourcing process is actually on this podcast and that's what I love about podcast podcast is a great way to copyright your work it's a great way to keep yourself accountable for sharing your evolution so you know, if you change manufacturer, if you change like process, this and that, like go back to all these episodes and then you can say like, well, look, you know, in 2018, there was an episode that I changed manufacturers or that I changed labeling or that I changed, you know. And as a matter of fact, I need to put it in this episode. We, thanks to Brexit, which has made manufacturing in the UK so much more difficult and so much more lengthy and expensive, um, we have moved a huge part of our manufacturing with the same manufacturer, same process in a good manufacturing practice facility, GMP facility, kosher, organic, all of it. Um, but those abiding by the new country went in, we are now in Germany. So if you get your Simply Inulin, chances are your new batch is says made in Germany with love. And that's same manufacturer, still our Jerusalem artichoke food, still the same process certifications, organic certifications, kosher certifications, um, GMP, all the certifications, biochecked, all of them from Germany this time. And Germany is incredible. And it's, you know, I mean, not that the UK is not because we're still producing there. Electrolytes still come from there and like our H2 inulins to come from there. But, you know, a huge part of our inulin production because we need to grow because we're getting distributed so much more now. Um, and because Brexit made things so expensive, so much longer, like it, it, we're, we're no longer like these collaborating countries, unfortunately. And I'm so sad about that. It, and this is not a political statement. It's just commercial, commercially, it's been difficult for us and it's been difficult for our counterparts in England. Um, but yeah, so we've moved a huge part of our production with our same manufacturer who has done that 
to continue serving its customers and companies like me that it produces for um, in Europe. So part of us, part of our production has moved to Germany and I'm so excited about that because their standards are so incredible. Um, and I, I don't want to say they're superior to England because that wouldn't be even true, but it, it's really, really amazing. And it's, you know, and, I, and it's like, I'm just so grateful that this has happened. Uh, yeah, so, and see, that's another milestone that is shared here. So this is why I, you know, want to keep this podcast this way. And I've, I've, blabbered, I've blabbered about that, but I think it's great. Um, it's also great to, when you, I have new followers and new customers who kind of go like, you know, I'm just discovering new stuff. I love it. Like, but what's your deal? And have you ever spoken about this? Maybe you should talk about it. I'm like, well, you know, I've been around for not very long, but I've been around quite some time. And I started a podcast back in like 2000, I think 17 or 18, something like that. Maybe go back to my podcast and like see where I'm coming from. I've spoken about cortisol for so many years. I've spoken about you know gut health for so many years. I've evolved. I've learned more, but you might want to go back to episode four. Or, you know, I have moms sometimes that say, oh my God, like, you never spoke about, you know, your son being on the spectrum. Like, what can you tell me? I'm like, no, I've spoken about it. Like, before you even read my book, go back to part of my French. I have an episode with Dylan who was 19 at the time. And, you know, you can see the whole progression and the success at the end, which is really the, what I was waiting for. I was waiting for the success to share. But I lose myself um, in all this catch up. I feel like you, you all are this friend I haven't seen in so long that I have so much to say. Does your head hurt yet? I think mine would if I listened to someone like me speaking so much. Um, our next episode is going to be amazing. I'm going to have Natalia from House of Lauren, who's my really good friend and who I have collaborated so much with on, um, you know, we she's done an article, she's done a few things as far as like she's done a graphics for Simply Gangster, like for Simply Newland and, you know, Gangster Chic brand on Instagram, things like that. And um, she's also my really good friend. And she's going to be on the next episode, which is going to be our host. And she's going to interview me and ask all of your burning questions. And I thought that would be really cool because I'm sure, like me, you are so tired of hearing myself talking to myself, right? That being said, let me read that chapter, get back to you with a few thoughts and... Let's make sure the next episode with Natalia as our host interviewing me will include follow-ups that you ask for on my latest post on Instagram. So once you listen to today's episode fully, go ask your question, follow-up question that Natalia will ask me on the next episode. And if your question is picked and asked, you will win a 600 milliliter with it, which is the, the mid-size jumbo size, the bigger size than the original size, simply in your limited edition, go French yourself. The jar is so beautiful. It's going to be a limited edition. I know that doesn't mean anything because like, what the fuck? Like, it's not going to be something that's going to be sold at, you know, Sotheby's or anything, but it's pretty cool. And you get... Great value, lots of inulin in it. You get 100 milliliters more inulin in volume than in a regular jar and you will win it. So make sure that you go like the last post on my Instagram and ask your question. Whoever questions Natalia will pick to ask me on the next episode will win and will announce it as well. Deal? Let's go and read 
that chapter. Okay, so before I start this episode, um, just realized this is not an audible recording, so it might not be perfect, and I might stumble on my words. Uh, and if I do, I'm so sorry about that. Um, I chose chapter 12, Life After Prison, just because, you know, yes, prison is part of my life, but I never wanted to... I never wanted it to be something to admire. You know, it's part of my adversity. It, it has served me in so many ways than just, you know, rehabilitation for criminals. Yes, it does make you look at your mistakes and say, oh my God, I will never do that again. You know, it does. But for me, it's done a lot more. And my goal with what I do in, you know, my professional space, health and wellness and, you know, working with mental health or not, not meant, I don't want to say mental health because right away that becomes tricky. But like you're not a doctor, you're not a psychologist. No, but maybe self-help. My point here is to, that I hope my mistakes and my adversities, if I share them the right way, without having anyone idolize prison, I don't think it's chic. I don't think it's cool. I think there's nothing to admire about people that go to prison. But if it happens, it gives you a colorful past. And again, that's nothing to admire unless you do something of it. And then if you do something of it for yourself, if you can speak out so people can compare their experience. Maybe I went to prison literally, but some people are in different kinds of prison. They're in emotional prisons, they're in professional prisons, you know, like everyone has their own share of suffering. And, and so maybe this can help you and maybe this can prevent you from, you know, the self-loathing that I've went through, that I've gone through or acting like a victim and that didn't serve me, you know, like, so if I can help you burn a few, a few steps that I've had to take to turn my adversity eventually into my version of success because I'm not saying I'm a huge success but you know anything away from what what I was and where I was is a success to me then you know then then I did something right with it um but for this reason I read chapter six last time and I and in that chapter is a lot I was behind bar a lot bars a lot I chose to share an episode where I mean uh, a chapter where I'm not in prison Um, so let's go for it. Life after prison, chapter 12. There was no way I was going to make this whole book about prison. If you are reading this book, it is definitely because you knew me then, or you know me now, and or you are curious of how I ended up here, and how I ended up there, and how I'm here now. I've taken you to my childhood, my life in NYC, my time in prison, and my early days in Monaco. And you must wonder, how did I get here really? Me coming to live in Monaco was either premeditation, premonition, or manifestation, depending on how you look at it. The first few months of my incarceration, I spent most of my time in denial. I thought I would be out the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The first week, I did not even do laundry. 
What was the point? I'd be out of there by the time I'd need fresh underwear. Denial in prison is a recipe for disaster. I did not eat because I I was told the inmates in the kitchen spit in the food. And I figured it's all right. I'll eat when I get home. I did not drink because I was told running water may be infected with AIDS. But it was all fine. I may be out the next day. I had a strong appeal. I had the best attorneys in the country. I had some of Washington, D.C. most powerful Jewish lobbyists lobbying for the injustice of my case. And I had the French government diplomatically involved too to get me out. Some people called it hope, but I realize now it was denial. Let me tell you something about the American justice system. You are guilty until proven innocent. That is if you have enough money to prove you are innocent. And it is much easier easier to go into prison than it is to get out. Once you are incarcerated, the chances of getting out before your sentence ends is close to none. I spent six months of my sentence in denial, living life as if it was my first day. Not eating, not drinking, not sleeping, not moving, not brushing my hair, and crying a lot. I did all this while still obligated to hold my job as a piano teacher and as a low library clerk. Turns out, in federal prison, if you don't have a high school degree, you're obligated to study and take your SATs. And if you have a law degree, you will most likely have to take a job in the law library and help delusional drug dealers, gang members, murderers write habeas corpus that no judge will ever bother with. I walked outside from my unit to the law library or to visiting, and that's that's all the walking that I did, and the only daylight I bothered seeing. Red Russia would nag me to go into the yard for a jog or a speed walk, and I would decline. I couldn't bring myself to doing anything that that felt like I was accepting my fate, accepting that this was my life now. I wasted away. When Savannah would come to visiting, she would always squeeze me tight and say, Mama, I can feel your bones. She would then stare down at my hands. My fingers were so thin and my nails were so weak. She would start tearing up. We had this Friday afternoon ritual to go to the nail salon after school ended to get my nails done and often get her spinty too. We both have fond memories of those self-care Fridays. We would first go get our Dunkin' Donut drinks, a milkshake for her and an iced coffee for me, and get Chinese and, and get to the Chinese nail salon I've been going to for the past 10 years. Savannah will say, Mama, I miss your pretty nails. After visiting, I often I often leaned a lot on Red Russia to pick up the pieces. Every single visit was a stab in my heart. I was getting worse each time. I cried longer and harder. Those times, Red Russia would give me a good shake. Come on, don't be such a pussy. You are a mother. You are strong. Don't let your kids see you like this with ugly puffy face and crazy hair. You scare the kids. She was right. I sucked. It sounded even worse when she said it with that Russian accent. Ultimately, ultimately, she forced me into accepting my fate. I would agree to speed walk around the yard. She would brainwash me with words of strength. She would get me to open up. And when I spoke about my kids, I held back tears so she wouldn't scold me. But often she would start crying for me. My profound and obsessive love for my children touched her. The only times I saw Red Rush I cry is when I would speak of my visit with my children or when I would explain Dylan's story or when her son Andrew came to visit and she found out his socks had holes, which indicated that the family she was paying to take care of him wasn't taking care of him right. After the six months mark, 
I almost came to terms with my incarceration. I still did not accept that I still had 36 months to go. My appeal was still pending, and my team of lawyer of lawyers was starting to fill the hand of corruption in my whole judgment and appeal. My older brother Roger had a connection that could get my case on Bill Clinton's desk and ultimately bring it to Sen Senator Hillary Clinton's attention. And he did. She started to inquire about my appeal with the Fourth Circuit Court. Normally, appeals are heard sooner than six months. Mine sat there, days after days, weeks after weeks, month after month. My lawyer, Nat Lewin, was no small-time attorney. He had won Supreme Court cases, and he was well-regarded at Capitol Hill. He was bewildered that this small-time mom selling fucking jeans on eBay from a kitchen was being completely railroaded and this case was muffled in the cracks of the system. Knowing Sen Senator Clinton was inquiring about my appeal, pushing the fourth secret circuit to deliberate gave me some solace and patience. I slowly started eating the kosher meals. They were very low in calories and definitely deficient in real nutrition, but at least no inmates touched them or could infect them with anything because of the kosher seals they were delivered with. I started showing up at the gym every day at nine and doing my own routine, which has become the method today, my patented protocol. I started reading books and studying the Zohar and Kabbalah, esoteric teachings meant to explain the relationship between God, the unchanging, eternal, and mysterious Ein Sof, the infinite, and the mortal and finite universe, God's creation. It forms the foundation, the foundation of mystical religious interpretation within Judaism that my grandfather, one of the greatest Kabbalists of his time, has taught me, had taught me a bit of when I was younger, and I started going for runs with Red Russia. I finally agreed after six months to smile at things and take pleasure in chai time. Chai time for Russians is sacred with her. She was generous. She always, she always bought good food from the commissary. She always treated me to cookies or tea. She would say, I don't know if I'm saying this. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Zahudi Nashai. Okay. Come for tea. You would redo the world. We would redo the world in our heads and our conversations. We would discuss whether she would need Botox when she would get out when she gets out. What color I should color my hair once I got out. What would we do? Where would we be? Once we were having chai, after one of our speed walks, Red Russia said, You know, I will be deported back to Russia. I will have them send Andrew back once I arrive, and I will never be allowed back in America. I will have to see you somewhere in Europe. I didn't even think twice. I looked at her and said, you know, this country betrayed me. I loved it so much. I trusted it. I no longer do. Eventually, someday, after I get my career back on track and make good money again, I will move to Monaco, and, I will come with, and you will come with Andrew to see me. You will be my guest. Red Russia didn't drink anyone's Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah. They all say that, and then they leave this place, and they never even write me. I had other friends like you here, you know. They all left, and I stay, and they never do the things they promised. So don't mind me if I don't believe you. I smiled and I shrugged, and I promised. You'll see. I moved to Monaco with my three children in 2012. A few years after, I got out of prison. Just as I moved to Monaco, she visited me with Andrew exactly six months after I arrived. She has since visited the kids and me many times. She has even met my husband, Jill, a few years later. 
I will always remember introducing them at the iconic Hotel Negresco's bar in Nice. She took one look at Gilles and said, he's a good man. He loves you. I'm so happy for you. You deserve him. And she cried happy emotional tears like her mother would. She had aged. I remember the day I arrived in Monaco, I called her. We were not technically allowed to speak when I was in the US. You cannot socialize with other convicts when you get out of prison. And I told her, remember I told you someday I would live in Monaco and you would visit me? Well, I now live in Monaco. I have a small apartment, but Andrew can sleep on the couch and you can sleep with me. You can come visit. She came for New Year's and the day she arrived, I was late picking her up from the airport. I ran to the gate to find her sitting on a bench with a grown Andrew. He was a little boy the last time I saw him and she was sobbing. Red Russia, I called out. I'm here. Why are you crying? Did customs trouble you? She ran to me and hugged me so tight and sobbed some more. No, no troubles. I thought you would not come for me. I thought I dreamt it. I'd never do that. Red Russia is still very important in my life. My guardian angel, Red Russia. During her visit, we had the best time, but also a very emotional time. My kids did not know exactly who she was. So, after New Year's, we had a big brunch on my terrace, and Red Russia prepared a typical Russian breakfast for us, and we cheered on Bellinis. I never told you who Red Russia is, I told my kids. What is, why is she so important to us? Do you remember seeing, seeing her from afar at visiting and Andrew too? But what you don't know is that she saved my life a few times. She kept me alive. She got me through. She is the reason we are here to today. We cried good tears that day. So while there are a few ways and reasons I ended up in Monaco, living the life I have today, I owe a big part of surviving prison to Red Russia, and perhaps I manifested Monaco. I don't even know why I said Monaco that day in the prison yard. I'd only been a few times, a few summers with my parents, who would leave me at the Hotel de Paris with, and my parents dressed to the nines, him in a tux and my mom in a beautiful ball gown, who go spend the evening at the Casino de Monte Carlo. And at the Casino de Monte Carlo, it represented so much glamour in memory, in my memories, but also the, practi the practicability of the culture. The prince, His Royal Highness Albert II, is both Monegasque and American. The languages spoken are English and French, which meant that the kids, and most particularly Dylan, would be okay being schooled there. I could not imagine even moving to even moving out in New York for Paris and its rude citizens or for rainy and gray London and its long winters. So Monaco it was, in my head at least. I never thought about Monaco again when I got out of prison. New York welcomed me back with open arms and offered me more professional success than I had before. My kids' lives were back on track and I went back to my dream house in Bell Harbor, Rockaway. I didn't think I, want to, I, didn't think I would want to leave except I lived a very paranoid life. The sight of black sedans and tinted windows SUVs made me think I was being tailed by the FBI. Each time I saw a guy walking by my nail salon more than once, I thought these fuckers were trying to get me again. It didn't matter that I had paid my so-called debt to society. My bottom line was I didn't really do anything the first time, so what's to stop them from getting me a second time? Fear of paranoia and paranoia, no, no reason. The sound of a helicopter over my house would send me into frantic panic, thinking there was an FBI raid about to happen. Yet, I didn't do anything other than sell fucking jeans on the internet. It was not PTSD. 
It was disdain and complete loss of trust in my country and its legal system. I didn't feel safe in the great US of A anymore. I didn't feel safe for three years in NYC after being released. And it took that asshole, Gil, the lover, not my husband, and his delusional wife trying to get me arrested on a false harassment charge for me to literally wake up and smell the coffee, give New York my two middle fingers and say, hasta la vista, baby. You know what is more terrifying than prison? Getting out of prison and spending every single day of your life being so scared of going back. I mean, the level of anxiety in prison is so high. It goes from being afraid of shakedowns, which could go bad if a guard found as much as an apple in your locker. My thought was always that one of those cunts could, could have planted contraband in my stuff to get me in trouble. And that meant no more visits, no more phone privileges. A strike added onto another, added onto another, could even lengthen your sentence. Anxiety flew high daily for all kinds of reasons. I didn't fuck with the cartels and the gang members, but I was often called on to translate from Spanish to English or to draft their OBS corpus in exchange for peace or a favor or protection. Each time I heard Maria Rosa, aka Gorda, Fatso, call for me, Flaquita, would always, I would always feel a knot in my stomach, at least the first few months. Keep in mind, addressing a person by referring to their appearance is a big riches from Tijuana to Tierra del Fuego. Across Latin America, blondes are uniformly called rubia, um, a portly person, gordo, and the vertical challenge, chico. To ending, the endings change to a from the subject is feminine and the use of the diminutive ito and ita connotes affection. In the Latina community in prison, it was very common. Gorda read tarot cards. And according to everyone, she was never wrong. She told Negrita that someone would come visit her after five years in Danbury with no visits. Sure enough, that month Negrita was called to visiting, her nephew came to visit to announce the death of her son. My suspicion mind kept thinking Gorda would have been a better psychic if she could have predicted the death rather than the visit, no? But I got so desperate for good news, for any ray of hope I could find, that eventually... I gave in and asked Gorda to read my cards. She had rules about that. Not after sundown, not on Wednesdays, not after her work at Unicor. By the time she accepted to read my cards, that is all I could think about that day. She took me to the yard out back during recess and asked me to shield her by sitting in, fr in front of her. Apparently witchcraft is not allowed in prison. What is the American government so scared of as flying off on broomsticks and escaping? What a fucking joke. She took out some mystical tarot cards, some of them terrifying, even though I don't understand any of them. She asked me to uncross my legs and everything or everything could go wrong, and she started reading my cards. Hay mucho celos. There's a lot of jealousy, she repeated over and over. There's a lot of jealousy around you. Jealousy is the reason you ended up here. Your husband loves you very much. He's waiting for you, your kids too. And the kids are going to be okay. You have a good lawyer. One is very strong, but the other is useless. He's wasting precious time. Pero tú te vas, muñequita. Tú te vas. Y te vas pronto. She said, but you are leaving. You're leaving, little doll. You're leaving soon. This was six months into my incarceration, and I believed her, and my heart felt lighter for a few days. I would eat a little more. I would smile a little more. I would write happier thoughts in my letter to the kids. My letters to the kids. I'm such a Cartesian that today, in hindsight, I realize how delusional you have to be to survive prison. I was delusional most of my incarceration. If you ever go to change for if you ever go 
to present the best advice I have for you is to be delusional. To be delusional. It helps you get by. In exchange for the tarot reading, I wrote many letters. I translated from Spanish to English on the new ref reforms that could possibly help Gorda with an, easy with an early release. I became her new favorite person and that scared me, knowing who she was and who she fucked with outside. She was a part of DDP. Dominicans don't play. A Dominican-American street gang started in Manhattan, New York in 1990. They are known for primarily using machetes and knives as weapons. DDP is located across New York City, particularly in the Bronx, Harlem, and the Lower East Side. I didn't tell Joe or anyone on the outside that I was in business with a DDP member. No one ever visited her for obvious reason. The whole family wouldn't step foot near a federal institution. The intelligence within the federal institution is actually really good. They know what you're up to and they know more than you think they do. I often got called into my case manager's office, Mr. Nichols. What's a case manager? It is someone kind of normal from the outside world, at least in my case he was. And you usually see your case manager the first day you arrive at prison. This person is key to your release because he performed correctional caseworks in an, in an institutional setting. He evaluates your progress in the institution, he coordinates and integrates you in the training program, he develops your social histories, evaluates positive and negative aspects in each case situation and develops release plans. My case managers my case manager clocked me from day one. I'm worried what you will do, he said. I'm worried about you. It is rare for me to have someone in my office who I don't think is a criminal at all. He was in his mid-40s, I think, and he had kind blue eyes and a shaved head. I used to joke to myself that with a few pounds off, he looked like Bruce Willis. He gave me scary survival tips. Don't discuss your sentence with anyone. Don't say where you live. Don't discuss your appeal. Don't trust nor believe what anyone says. You are here with serious offenders, hardcore criminals, and while we have them in custody, we can't stop their criminal impulses. Keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, and you will finish your sentence without a hitch and go home. With a case manager, you come to the realization that once you are released, you will still be in custody. You will most likely be released to a halfway house, even though I wasn't, which is the most terrifying shit ever. And then you will be on probation under the strict supervision of a probation officer. I'd often remind Mr. Nichols that I had an appeal going and I was going to win. And I would be released an innocent and exonerated woman. He was kind about my delusion, delusions because you have to know that only 1% of federal cases in the district I was appealing ever get overturned. He once said, please don't put me in a position where I have to look out for you. Fucking with gang members will get you a longer sentence. I know you feel you need the protection from these thugs, but keep to yourself and come to me if you ever feel in danger. You don't need to associate with these criminals. You need to focus and go home to your children and to your nice life. Next time Joe came to visiting, I asked him to Google Maria Rosa and soon found out who she was. I couldn't turn back though. I was a homie. She would holler, she would holler for me from across the unit. And when Gorda, when Gorda hollers, for you, you don't fucking ignore her. Besides, I became untouchable with the Latinas thanks to that connection. I was untouchable with the Russians and Caucasians thanks to my friendship with Russia. And as a result, the African-Americans 
and the lesbians didn't touch me because they don't fuck around with the Latina gangs. I'm from Brooklyn, so I had a good sense of street rules, of loyalty, such as returning favors, not ratting, and overall keeping my mouth shut. None of them believed I was there for selling jeans anyways. Even the dumbest inmate found this hard to believe. So I ended up playing the game, making them believe I was there for a much more serious crime. I went from spending the first few months in fear to building myself a shield of allies. I had something they wanted, my language skills and my legal skills, and in exchange, no one would dare fuck with me. My biggest fear was the night and the shower. I was more afraid of a sexual assault than a fight or an attempt at my life. Don't ask me why the sexual activity in prison is what freaked me out the most. I'm going to skip a little bit of this chapter because I feel like you need the book to know what happens next in what I just spoke about. So call this a teaser. I'm going to end on the end of this chapter and it's like, I think you need to read this to understand what's happened. I never shared any of this and this referring to what I skipped with Joe when he visited. And I always tried to keep a smile on for the kids. My sentence was long. Birthdays passed. Holidays passed. My kids' school plays, school graduation, dance recital. All of it passed me by. I'm missing a whole year of photo albums of my children. Dakota took her first steps. She started potty training and kept the diaper off for hours at a time. I missed it all. When they would tell me about it at visiting, I would cry and I couldn't stop crying. My heart was broken and it still is till today. Missing a year out of each of and every one of their lives was traumatic. Dylan went through a domino effect of digressions in his cognitive development. And even his speech was more impaired than ever. His, cognit his cognitive development is something that really took a hit with this incarceration. Savannah had to grow up too fast that year. She was robbed of her innocence and nonchalance. She realized what was happening only too well and carried a whole weight on her shoulder. She sensed that I was suicidal and she felt responsible to, for keeping me alive. She would wake up at 5 a.m. every day of her summer vacation to make sure she was brought along to visit me on the two-hour car ride to Connecticut. She never truly went back to being a child after it was all over. As much as I gave her princess themed parties and I did everything to make her little girl's dream come true, that innocence was gone. She aged. I still see it in her eyes today at 18. She's an old soul who carries the well-being of those she loves heavily on her shoulders, especially mine. So when you ask what prison was like, that's what it was like. It's shit. It fucks your life up. It scares the shit out of you. And it ruins the lives of those who love you the most. This is the end of this chapter. And I'm going to leave you with that. And I'm going to leave you with the thought that when you ask me how I cope so well with haters. And how I cope so well with criticism and not giving a fuck. Because... I can't give a fuck about anything that does not compare to what I've gone through. So I guess I'm going to leave this with you going to ask your questions on my latest post on Instagram. Don't hesitate to send me a message if it's something personal. 
Um, I will touch more on how to go French yourself with poise and attitude dealing with hate. But I hope this gives you an insight. Um, in the context of things, you can get my book on Amazon, on all Amazon worldwide. It's called Fuck My Life, the memoir of a chic gangster. And the French translation is called Ma Putain de Vie, and it's available on Amazon France. With that, I wish you a beautiful day wherever you are. Bisous, bisous from Monaco.